Welcome to the Senya Happy Hour, where you get one hour of learning in less than 30 minutes. Hey everyone. Today I speak with Steve Leinwand, who has a long and impressive career as a math teacher, leader, researcher, and author in the field. Steve calls himself a math education change agent, and as you'll see, does not hold back from sharing his views on how we can best support our students and teach math in a meaningful way for them. Steve shares best practices and explains why students learn much more from our questions than our lectures. We also discuss UDL, the effects of this pandemic, and give you a sneak peek into Steve's presentation for Senya 2021. And now, on to the show. Hi, Steve, and welcome to our Senya Happy Hour. It's a pleasure to be here, Lori. Well, I'm delighted you're joining me today as we are going to discuss, honestly, my least favorite subject, which is math. Um, and I'm sure you hear a lot of people, whether we're educators or students, say this very thing. Uh, your title is Math Education Change Agent. Is this why you call yourself a change agent? Yes. I mean, I, I, it, I, change and, and being a change agent, empowering teachers, supporting teachers, validating outliers is pretty much what I've done for almost 50 years. Um, you know, from very early in, in my career, which actually I started teaching at Middletown High School in a school in a school program 50 years ago this September. I mean, it's it's mind boggling to me that um, I have uh, I've done what I've done that. But but early on, I realized that um, that, that the status quo was in, was unacceptable. The, the status quo wasn't working. There were too many kids that were falling through the cracks. Um, there were too many kids being sorted out by the traditional program um, at all levels. And, and then when I started teaching AP calculus and you had the best and the brightest, I mean, in fact, my second and third year of teaching, I had consecutively um, Christopher Reeve, Superman's stepbrother and stepsister in my AP calculus class. And I mean, you couldn't ask for kids that were just more amazing and more wonderful. And yet they would tell you first and foremost how they felt that they had been um, hurt by the program. You know, so people think that it's only the bottom third that, that get hurt or screwed. And I think that's not the case. Bottom line is that, um, that, that things like calculators and things like bringing AP statistics to the, to the world, like far more estimation beginning early on, um, using context, recognizing that we had a play, that, that kids played in music and in art and learned and in math. It was all just worksheets and all. So, um, and more recently, it's all been about shifts in classroom practice. So, yeah, I mean, I have been an advocate for change, a supporter of change. Um, and, um, you know, when, when you say, um, I didn't like math. I mean, I hated math. Math didn't work for me. Um, you know, I have a standard answer or a standard response to that every time we hear it. And you're right. We hear it all the time. Um, and that is um, you were screwed by inadequate, ineffective teaching. And, and as soon as I say that, I mean, it, it really reminds you that everyone can learn it if we teach better. But, but then people say, well, you're blaming teachers and, and far from it. The problem is that the teachers have been screwed. 
Teachers have not been given the guidance. They've not been given the support. How few teachers really have effective coaches to help them and guide them? Um, when your experiences are mediocre in math, how do you do anything different than what you've always done or what you've learned to do? And, and so um, that's why I think we need change. And I think that we um, spend too much time blaming the kids and blaming the teachers when in fact, it's a serious systemic issue. And you know, when we start talking about special ed, um, you know, there is nothing worse than the kids who most need something different getting the same old, same old mindless worksheets and rules. And, you know, that's where, uh, you know, we can come back to. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud to announce to the world that I am a mathematics change agent. If you're not interested in changes, then fine. I mean, I have enough places to go and enough to read and enough still to write. I don't need to go there. It's great. You know, it's easy to be able to say that it's 72 and say it with a smile and mean it. Oh, I mean, I, I'm fine if I don't go and get on a plane ever again. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. And um, I'm sitting here or standing here giving you a uh, standing ovation right now. Love, Great. love, love that attitude. So you've written multiple books. Um, one of them's entitled Accessible Mathematics, 10 Instructional Shifts That Raise Student Achievement. Um, in this book, you focus on the crucial issues of classroom instruction, according to the book synopsis. You scoured the research and visited highly effective classrooms for practical examples of small adjustments to teaching that lead to deeper student learning in math. So can you give us some examples of these small adjustments? Sure. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, you remind me that what you write on the book cover um, and all is really um, important that people do read it and you better be able to answer those kinds of questions. It's, it's funny that um, this morning we just tweeted out the um, fact that um, Eric Milo and my new book called Invigorating High School Math um, is available for presale. And, um, and, and in fact, we spent a lot of time on the language on the back cover. And you've only reminded me now that, you know, I better take that seriously because someone's going to read it back to me and I better not, um, you know, um, not be able to respond. So, so this is an incredibly important question. Everyone asks, where do you start? So, I mean, you've got this whole range of, of, of shifts and adjustments, and we'll talk about some of them if you, if you want. But the most important one is pausing and recognizing that the given is that they, the students, learn far more from our questions than they do from our lectures. That what stimulates the development of synaptic connections, to use a fancy term, what makes people smarter, what helps people begin to understand is responding to stimuli. And the best stimuli are the questions. And so when a principal says to me, well, where do I start? How can I help my teachers? I go from the side of the room because I refuse to let you sit in the back of the room whenever you're in a class. You sit on the side of the room where you are a participant, where you can see the teachers, you can see the kids, you don't see the back of their heads and you can easily jump up or sit right there and everyone can see you. And your job is when the kid calls out 72 and that's the right answer, or even if it's not the right answer. Um, you, you, they said pause, and you know that the teacher is going to basically say, oh, good, yes, let's move on. That's when the single most important thing that every instructor can do is ask, huh, 72. Why is that? Can you explain? How do you know? Can you convince us? Who can convince us in another way? Who solved it differently? Can you draw a picture? And so of all the instructional shifts, the one that I think makes the most difference in kids' lives, the one that I see least of 
in classes with students with special needs because it reduces itself to just rules and regurgitation and the same old, same old, and then the kid feels inadequate because it's not being done differently, is we don't pause and go, so why do you think that is? And, and, and sure, we have nonverbal kids for whom you have to focus on a picture and can you draw a picture or I'll draw a picture of that. Can you label the picture? Those kinds of interactions around the, how did you picture it and why and how do you know? And all that means is less is more. No class should kids be doing 10 examples. Never should kids be given a worksheet with 10 stupid mindless regurgitated problems. No kid should ever be given more than four tasks at a time. And a class that has four tasks um, where you spend time and the expectation is we're gonna talk about why and how do you know? And the first one we do as a class or the first one we do as groups of two. And then we have kids start off individually and then share it with their partner. And then the partner share with another partner. And, and, and in four, different tasks where the last one is really the formative assessment. The last one is the only one done individually. And, and in each case, we're talking about, can you explain it and why and who wants to explain it? And we post student work. Those are the characteristics of classrooms that I see all over the United States, all over the world. Those are classrooms of teachers who have figured out that less is more and that my questions are absolutely indispensable. And so of all this stuff in, in, um, in accessible math, that's the one that, um, you know, that I put high up. Um, the, the other two strategies, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about this um, probably in, you know, a little later if you wanna talk about universal design, but um, the whole idea of differentiation is so bandied around in our business. It is amazing how few teachers really understand what we mean by differentiation other than you give kids different work. And how many administrators who write on a teacher's evaluation, oh, you really do need to differentiate a little more. And I tell teachers because I'm subversive. I tell teachers, um, well, you ought to ask that evaluator to come to your classroom and help you. Why don't you come to my classroom and show me what you mean by differentiation? And, and the, the sad reality is, is that far too few people can do that. Math coaches, effective math coaches can do it. And what they know is that Differentiation is as simple as who did it differently, how did you do it differently, and how did you picture it, and who pictured it differently. In other words, the idea of multiple representations and the idea of, of, of alternative approaches are critical if we're going to have mathematics work for more than the same old one third or most 40% in a high SES community, um, and that's not acceptable in this society. And then we can spend hours talking about the pandemic and, and what it taught us about mathematical ignorance in this society, um, we pay a real price for that kind of ignorance. I have so many questions. <laughs> Good, by the way. <laughs> well, uh, you, did, you did mention universal design and I was going yeah. to ask, does that um, come into play here when, it, when we discuss how we can best support our learners who find math challenging or have that learning disability? So besides differentiation, yeah. What are some strategies teachers can use to help a support picture, our kids? A picture and a context. I mean, you know, um, I spent a large part of my life writing thousands and thousands of test items. And we got a contract from a state that said, um, we expect every one of, our, um, of the items you submit, and we're talking about 4,000 items, to um, live up to the UDL standards. And so we spent a lot of time looking at what all that meant and, and came away after weeks of reading and discussion and all, it just means 
effective, accessible items for all kids. And, and so, for example, when I look at a, at a test, when I look at, for example, the Oregon online test that is given up hundreds of kids, when I look at the, um, at the um, NWEA map tests, I say, so let me just scan through or run through these items online. How many have a graphic? How many have a picture? Not a gratuitous graphic, but a graphic that helps ground it or give kids access. And, and so that notion of how did you picture it, of stopping and saying that, you know, for you, it's a number line. Um, the, the, the UDL that becomes so critical is I say to the class, so look at this question. Three quarters of the brownies have icing on them. What do you notice? What do you think? Can you draw a picture? What do you need to know? Well, there's three quarters. I mean, what, what is three quarters? And, and then the student will say, well, how many are there? And I'll go, well, I'm not sure. Or I might, then some classes say, okay, there are a dozen and deal with a dozen is 12 and all that stuff. But can you picture three quarters? I mean, UDL and effective teaching and this idea of multiple representations, this idea of giving kids access to math is a class where the kids on their whiteboards or on the board or in a piece of software that we can post all of their work so that everyone can see it is a class where one kid says three line four, wonderful. And another kid has a number line and makes a big mark to the left of one and, and, and to the right of a half. And another kid draws a, um, a rectangle uh, or a square and divides it into four pieces and colors in three of them. Another kid has four circles and colors in three of them. Another kid is weird and has eight circles and colors in six of them. Now those are only the right answers because you know that I wanna cultivate the wrong answers and I wanna ask kids which one is not three quarters and how do you know and why? But look what I've just done. I've accommodated the fact that I've got, um, you know, five or six different ways that brains are processing it. And if all math, and particularly math for the kids who struggle, the kids whose brains are not wired the way in which the textbook author's brains are wired. Um, if we don't provide an opportunity that say, oh, this is so great. I don't understand why, but you're a number line person. There aren't a whole lot of number line people, but I'll tell you, you can get by with the rest of your life if you think about number lines. And the other kid's sitting there going, well, I'm cool with this three quarters because it's three quarters of the square. I need that kid to see that if you were to separate those four squares, it becomes three out of four parts and not the three fourths of the whole. And that idea is what keeps people back. If they only see it as a part of a whole, they're screwed when they come to the idea of three quarters of a set. And, and so when you think about math being um, something that you just didn't like, I sit there and say, there was a mismatch because you should have been loving math. There should have been context and there should have been recipes. And, you know, then don't get me started. But right now, I am so tired of hearing about learning loss. Learning loss is so racist. Learning loss is so arrogant. Now, yes, there are kids who really have had a terrible year and a half. There are kids who, because of lack of access and lack of other things, did not learn a whole lot of things. But how about all that they did learn? 
How about all the kids that spend time with their parents that they never would have otherwise? How about the kids that did recipes and learned stuff in the kitchen? How about all the stories we hear from our friends who have little kids and not so little kids that they entertained and the kids that did puzzles and games and learned strategies? Don't tell me about learning loss. There were learning gains to offset some of those learning losses. And then learning loss about what? If kids didn't get effective instruction in third grade or a third grader didn't learn some of these things about fractions, we've got to pack, we've got to fix that. We've got to make that up. But if the kid didn't do two digit multiplication that no one does with pencil and paper anymore, that's not learning loss to me, that's learning gain. You didn't have a chance to be strangled by three digit long division. So I just think we have to be really careful about banding this around when um, we know that we've got to go back right into grade level stuff, look at kids as individuals, worry about who needs additional support, um, and, and, and the fact that kids did gain a whole lot of things. It just may not be the things that are um, you know, sitting there on some multiple choice test. So a long yeah. answer. Um, no, that's okay. You know, I love that's... it. And, I, I, you know, it just got me thinking about um, some of the students that I've worked with in the past who, um, you know, we are teaching kids different strategies to solve problems. Um, yep. But that can also be very overwhelming for yes. our students who who struggle. And, uh, you know, trying to advocate for those students that, yeah, the number line works for them. So yep. can they yep. continue to use that? Um, but there's a lot of pushback with people right. saying, well, no, they need to learn this algorithm and they need to learn friendly exactly. numbers or blah, blah, blah. And it, it just gets overwhelming. I have, um, I've watched teachers put the four different strategies um, on cards and say to the students, so let's talk about this one. What's happening here? Well, that's the number line. What do you think? I don't like number lines. Good. What about this one? Well, that would make sense to me. That's the, that's the box. I can cut anything up into the same number of pieces. I've already won. When the kid is able to say, I cut it up into you know equal size pieces, that kid is ahead of the game already. And then the kid gets to decide because I, you're absolutely right. I cannot teach all those strategies to the kids. I've got to decide you know, and help the kid decide which is the one that works for them and then build from there. You know, I mean, it's, it's just go back and think about when you start first feeling inadequate. The kids around you are all memorizing eight plus nine and they all know it's 17. All right, wonderful. Um, so here I sit at 72 with 800s on all my SATs and my GREs and, you know, the ability to do an amazingly large amount of, of mathematics. Um, my brain does not have a neural connection between eight plus nine and 17. I practice it all the time. I talk about it all the time. There is nothing I can do to solder that link as smart as I'm supposed to be. My brain, since I've been seven years old, says eight and eight is 16 and one more is 17. Now I'm talking about being at the airport and having something that's 80 cents and something that's 90 cents. And my brain says $80, $60.70. That's the only way I'm able to do it. So this idea of, of, of different strategies, so the double plus one, the double minus one, opens floodgates to all kinds of things. Then I've got kids that go, I hate doubles, but I love replacing nines with tens. I want the whole class to sit there and go, whoa, why didn't I think of that? And so we know that eight and nine is eight and 10, 18, done, finished. And now I know the place value stuff is, is fine, and they subtract one. And then I've got another kid that sits there and goes, wait a second, 
Eight and nine is the same as 10 and 10, but because they've spent so much time with tens frames, they know that the eight has got two holes and the nine has got one hole. And so it's 20, 18, 17, and they count back three. I mean, so that to me is the essence of alternative approaches of different representations and how we are giving kids this smorgasbord of opportunities where they then, with our help, decide which ones work for them. And, um, you know, this is not rocket science. I mean, this is stuff that's been talked about for years. Um, I, I worry that the testing and the pressure to get kids up to speed on multiple choice tests has really gotten in the way of some of these things. And, uh, you know, our, our greatest hope is that the pandemic helps us recognize that the tests are not the most important thing. I think that um, I'm as guilty as anybody else of not paying attention to social emotional learning um, you know, I did a whole bunch of pro bono uh, pep talks to friends and for friends and people all around the country um, during the pandemic. Um, and my simple 45 minute, you know, Steve's pandemic pep talk, you know, you're working your tail off. This is hard. The good news is that as a teacher, it's the first time you've got to figure it out with your colleagues because there's no administrator that has any clue of what you're going through. They can't help you because they don't know what you're going through. They don't know the answer to this stuff. Only your colleagues know. And the schools that were most successful, you know, understood that. Um, but I spent a lot of time in these, um, in these um, you know, sort of pep talk sessions, you know, reminding people, look at, look at just um, starting off with, um, all right, on your whiteboards, and you got 30 faces or 18 faces on your whiteboards, you ready? What'd you have for dinner last night? What a, what a great, like, who cares about math? Who cares about anything? Every kid writes it down. They have to spell it. I got misspellings. I don't care. And, and I have the things so that every kid can see on the, um, on the screen. And so I go, so hold those whiteboards. Look at the screen. What's the weirdest food up there? What's your favorite food that's up there? What an amazing discussion about multiculturalism. What an amazing discussion about the different kinds of foods. Um, what, a, what, a, you know, what a way to honor kids and that stuff. And then I love switching it around to, so how many people did you eat with last night? Yes, it's mathematical. But mm -hmm. I mean, for the kid that ate by himself or herself and, and doesn't realize that there are six other kids in the class that are stuck eating by themselves. And then you sit there and realize that you have two classmates that are eating with six other people. It's, it's just mind, but, but that's just pausing, being mathematical and focusing on social emotional stuff. And I think the teachers I talk to, and there are many, are all saying, um, yes, we really learned something important. And that's more important than, you know, the warm up and, and you know, the today's objective is. And again, it speaks to why I think we need an hour a day for math, period. Period. Full stop. So uh, <laughs> you, you have a great website and I will share that on our show notes for our listeners. Um, and you also share a ton of free, of your presentations uh, that you've done in the past. And I think that's a real gift to teachers. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um, you had oh, one. Well, let me, yeah, let me go just, on. Let me just tell you that, that, um, you know, again, it goes back to the fact that I've been so blessed. Um, and, and I just think that, that if I have a few decent ideas, they really need to be shared. I mean, that's part of our message is that the isolation of the professional is what gets in the way. Why would I ask people to do something that I myself won't do and, and won't model? You know, so look what it says on the bottom of the website. It says everything on this website is open and available for you to use in any way, shape or form that helps you help kids. I mean, that's just what it is. Now, part of it is 
I was a teacher for, you know, eight years. And then I was the state bureaucrat running math in Connecticut for 22 years. Um, I stayed low man on the totem pole in both positions. I refused promotions over and over and over again because I loved what I was doing. But, but that taught me that in this profession, proprietary information just isn't necessary or in, isn't appropriate. Um, and, and so if everything is shared, it just is in my DNA. Some of the hardest stuff when I, the last 20 years at the American Institutes for Research has been that there is proprietary information and there are some things that I can't share or that I have to wait until it's been fully released by the government. That hasn't been easy, but at least I almost always knew that it would eventually be, be posted. Um, and, and then, I don't know, I, I, I grew up with the message that um, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I guess I internalized that early on. And, and anything I can give back, anything that I can do to help teachers help kids makes this a, a better society. And, and then I've already said to you that, that you know, it, it just fits my self-concept of, um, of an empower of teachers and a validator of outliers. You know, I love the fact that I hear over and over again from the 20% the that are like you, that are like me, that'll break the rules, that, that justify what they do by serving kids, that take risks, that believe in fail fast, fail often, then pick up the pieces and try it again another way. That's not easy. And it's not easy to do when your colleagues are like looking at you like you're making them look bad. And so my job is to validate that. My job is to, is to help those people realize that everything I know says that's what ought to happen. And so, I mean, that's why if it has value, I put it on the website, I, you know, it's there, go use it. And, um, you know, I, I wish that even more people went there. So that's, yep. that's why well, that's there. Good. Well, you'll have a lot of um, visits to your website, I think soon, Great. <laughs> especially after our yeah, Senya yeah. conference. Um, so yeah. you'll be presenting at Senya 2021, 20, yes. our virtual conference. Yep. Um, can yep. you give us all a little sneak peek about your talk? Yeah, that's easy. I mean, so so first of all, I don't even know how long it is. Do I have an hour? Is it all day? Yeah, an is hour it? or 75 minutes. Perfect. So. That's great. Wonderful. Super. So um, this is an adaptation that because it's always adapting. I mean, I never do the same talk twice. Um, and, and so this one is called Practical and Accessible Strategies for Making Math Work for Students with Special Needs. And so it really plays off of some of the things that we've um, talked about here, but um, it's a fast paced example-leading session. Um, I'll be asking lots of questions. I'll be trying to model the things and about halfway through, I'll say, now look at how this is grounded in, you know, one slide, these aspects of the research, okay? That's not what this is about. It simply says to you, um, I'm not making this stuff up. The research says it there. But I mean, not surprisingly, we're, we're going to look at um, ways to replace the mindless worksheets and replace rules that are instantaneously forgotten with things like um, multiple representations, as we've talked about, about alternative approaches with lots of examples of where and how. Um, we'll look at cumulative review, which I think is critical. We know that memory is a real issue. We know that understanding trumps memory. We know that fluency is not memorizing, but fluency is understanding. And so how you do the cumulative review and how you keep these skills um, current becomes absolutely um, important. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about using contexts because there's a big difference between three plus two symbolically on a board and three boys and three girls standing in front of the room. And, um, you know, I put three plus five on the board and I go, what do you see? And the kids go, I see a three, I see a plus, I see a two, and therefore I must see a five. Good. 
when I put three girls and two boys in the front of the room, what do you see? The whole world explodes. My weakest kid is sitting there saying, oh, you know, I see Robin and I see Beth and I see Mickey, right? And another kid says, right, I see five of my classmates. And another kid says, well, how do you know that's Robin? What do you mean, how do you know well, that's her name? Oh, neat. So we can start talking about, we name things and we are able to refer to them in that way. And another kid sits there, I see five classmates. I go, what happened to boys and girls? Well, you know, I mean, so I'm talking again about apples and oranges become five pieces of fruit. And those are the ways in which I think we, we pull it all together. And, you know, I get people to think about it and then we can send them to some of the things I've written and go from there. Perfect. Well, I'm excited. And I know oh, that's great. everyone will be too. So thanks for your time today. I think we're, we're out. Um, <laughs> so so um, we really appreciate it. And we're really looking forward to... Um, seeing you talk at Senya 2021. Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for asking me to talk and for um, inviting me to the podcast. Um, obviously, it's something that is near and dear to my heart. Thanks. Thanks for stopping in to our Senya Happy Hour. Don't forget to head over to senyainternational.org slash podcasts and check out our show notes from our discussion today. We at Senya hope you are enjoying these podcasts. There is so much to explore, and we're at the very beginning, so feel free to drop us a note and let us know what you'd like to hear more about during your next Senya Happy Hour. Until then, cheers!